Section 9 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rood the rise and spread of christianity a d thirty three by john henry newman part one the prima facie view of early christianity in the eyes of witnesses external to it is presented to us in the brief but vivid descriptions given by tacitus suetonius and pliny the only heathen writers who distinctly mention it for the first hundred and fifty years tacitus is led to speak of the religion on occasion of the conflagration of rome which was popularly imputed to nero to put an end to the report he says he laid the guilt on others and visited them with the most exquisite punishment those namely who held in abhorrence for their crimes per flagitia in visos were popularly called christians the author of that profession nominis was Christ, who, in the reign of Tiberius, was capitally punished by the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition, exitibialis superstitio, though checked for a while, broke out afresh, and that not only throughout Judea, the original seat of the evil, but through the city also, whither all things atrocious or shocking, atrocia aut pudenda, flow together from every quarter and thrive at first certain were seized who avowed it then on their report a vast multitude were convicted not so much of firing the city as of hatred of mankind odio humani generis after describing their tortures he continues in consequence though they were guilty and deserved most signal punishment they began to be pitied, as if destroyed not for any public object, but from the barbarity of one man. Suetonius relates the same transactions thus. Capital punishments were inflicted on the Christians, a class of men of a new and magical superstition, superstitionis nove et malefici. What gives additional character to this statement is its context for it occurs as one out of various police or sanctuary or domestic regulations which nero made such as controlling private expenses forbidding taverns to serve meat repressing the contests of theatrical parties and securing the integrity of wills when pliny was governor of pontus he wrote his celebrated letter to the emperor trajan to ask advice how he was to deal with the christians whom he found there in great numbers one of his points of hesitation was whether the very profession of christianity was not by itself sufficient to justify punishment whether the name itself should be visited though clear of flagitious acts flagitia or only when connected with them he says he had ordered for execution such as persevered in their profession after repeated warnings, quote, as not doubting whatever it was they professed that, at any rate, contumacy and inflexible obstinacy ought to be punished, 
end quote. He required them to invoke the gods, to sacrifice wine and frankincense to the images of the emperor, and to blaspheme Christ. To which, he adds, it is said no real Christian can be compelled. Renegades informed him that, quote, the sum total of their offense or fault was meeting before light on an appointed day, and saying with one another a form of words, carmen, to Christ, as if to a god, and binding themselves by oath, not to the commission of any wickedness, but against the commission of theft, robbery, adultery, breach of trust, denial of deposits, that after this they were accustomed to separate, and then to meet again for a meal, but eaten altogether and harmless. However, that they had even left this off after his edicts enforcing the imperial prohibition of heteria or associations. End quote. He proceeded to put two women to the torture, but quote, discovered nothing beyond a bad and excessive superstition. End quote. Superstitionem pravam et imodicam, the contagion of which he continues had spread through villages and country till the temples were emptied of worshippers. In these testimonies, which will form a natural and convenient text for what is to follow, we have various characteristics brought before us of the religion to which they relate. It was a superstition, as all three writers agree, a bad and excessive superstition, according to Pliny, a magical superstition, according to Suetonius, a deadly superstition, according to Tacitus. Next, it was embodied in a society, and, moreover, a secret and unlawful society, or heteria, and it was a proselytizing society, and its very name was connected with flagitious, atrocious, and shocking acts. Now, these few points, which are not all which might be set down, contain in themselves a distinct and significant description of Christianity, but they have far greater meaning when illustrated by the history of the times, the testimony of later writers, and the acts of the Roman government toward its professors. It is impossible to mistake the judgment passed on the religion by these three writers, and still more clearly by other writers and imperial functionaries. They evidently associated Christianity with the Oriental superstitions, whether propagated by individuals or embodied in a rite, which were in that day traversing the empire, and which, in the event, acted so remarkable a part in breaking up the national forms of worship, and so in preparing the way for Christianity. This, then, is the broad view which the educated heathen took of Christianity, and, if it had been very unlike those rites and curious arts in external appearance, they would not have confused it with them. Changes in society are, by a providential appointment, commonly preceded and facilitated by the setting in of a certain current in men's thoughts and feelings in that direction toward which a change is to be made. And, as lighter substances whirl about before the tempest and presage it, so words and deeds, ominous but not effective of the coming revolution, are circulated beforehand through the multitude or pass across the field of events. 
this was specially the case with christianity as became its high dignity it came heralded and attended by a crowd of shadows shadows of itself impotent and monstrous as shadows are but not at first sight distinguishable from it by common spectators before the mission of the apostles a movement of which there had been earlier parallels had begun in egypt syria and the neighboring countries tending to the propagation of new and peculiar forms of worship throughout the empire prophecies were afloat that some new order of things was coming in from the east which increased the existing unsettlement of the popular mind pretenders made attempts to satisfy its wants and old traditions of the truth embodied for ages in local or in national religions gave to these attempts a doctrinal and ritual shape which became an additional point of resemblance to that truth which was soon visibly to appear the distinctive character of the rites in question lay in their appealing to the gloomy rather than to the cheerful and hopeful feelings and in their influencing the mind through fear the notions of guilt and expiation of evil and good to come and of dealings with the invisible world were in some shape or other preeminent in them and formed a striking contrast to the classical polytheism which was gay and graceful as was natural in a civilized age the new rites on the other hand were secret their doctrine was mysterious their profession was a discipline beginning in a formal initiation manifested in an association and exercised in privation and pain they were from the nature of the case proselytizing societies for they were rising into power nor were they local but vagrant restless intrusive and encroaching their pretensions to supernatural knowledge brought them into easy connection with magic and astrology which are as attractive to the wealthy and luxurious as the more vulgar superstitions to the populace the christian being at first accounted a kind of jew was even on that score included in whatever odium and whatever bad associations attended on the jewish name but in a little time his independence of the rejected people was clearly understood as even the persecutions show and he stood upon his own ground still his character did not change in the eyes of the world for favor or for reproach he was still associated with the votaries of secret and magical rites the emperor hadrian noted as he is for his inquisitive temper and a partaker in so many mysteries still believed that the christians of egypt allowed themselves in the worship of serapes they are brought into connection with the magic of egypt in the history of what is commonly called the thundering legion so far as this that the rain which relieved the emperor's army in the field and which the church ascribed to the prayers of the christian soldiers is by dio cassius attributed to an egyptian magician who obtained it by invoking mercury and other spirits this war had been the occasion of one of the first recognitions which the state had conceded to the oriental rites though statesmen and emperors as private men 
had long taken part in them the emperor marcus had been urged by his fears of the marcomanni to resort to these foreign introductions and is said to have employed magi and chaldeans in averting an unsuccessful issue of the war it is observable that in the growing countenance which was extended to these rites in the third century christianity came in for a share the chapel of alexander severus contained statues of abraham orpheus apollonius pythagoras and our lord here indeed as in the case of zenobia's judaism an eclectic philosophy aided the comprehension of religions but immediately before alexander heliogabalus who was no philosopher while he formally seated his syrian idol in the palatine while he observed the mysteries of cybele and adonis and celebrated his magic rites with human victims intended also according to lampridius to unite with his horrible superstition the jewish and samaritan religions and the christian rite that so the priesthood of heliogabalus might comprise the mystery of every worship hence more or less the stories which occur in ecclesiastical history of the conversion or good-will of the emperors to the christian faith of hadrian mamea and others besides heliogabalus and alexander such stories might often mean little more than that they favored it among other forms of oriental superstition what has been said is sufficient to bring before the mind an historical fact which indeed does not need evidence upon the established religions of europe the east had renewed her encroachments and was pouring forth a family of rites which in various ways attracted the attention of the luxurious the political the ignorant the restless and the remorseful armenian chaldee egyptian jew syrian phrygian as the case might be was the designation of the new hierophant and magic superstition barbarism jugglery were the names given to his right by the world in this company appeared christianity when then three well-informed writers call christianity a superstition and a magical superstition they were not using words at random or the language of abuse but they were describing it in distinct and recognized terms as cognate to those gloomy secret odious disreputable religions which were making so much disturbance up and down the empire the gnostic family suitably traces its origin to a mixed race which had commenced its national history by associating orientalism with a revelation after the captivity of the ten tribes samaria was colonized by men from babylon and kushan and from eva and from hamath and from sepharvaim who were instructed at their own instance in the manner of the god of the land by one of the priests of the church of jeroboam the consequence was that they feared the lord and served their own gods of this country was simon the reputed patriarch of the gnostics and he is introduced in the acts of the apostles as professing those magical powers which were so principal a characteristic of the oriental mysteries his heresy though broken into a multitude of sects was poured over the world with a catholicity 
not inferior in its day to that of Christianity. St. Peter, who fell in with him originally in Samaria, seems to have encountered him again at Rome. At Rome, St. Polycarp met Marcion of Pontus, whose followers spread through Italy, Egypt, Syria, Arabia, and Persia. When the reader of Christian history comes to the second century, says Dr. Burton, he finds that Gnosticism, under some form or other, was professed in every part of the then civilized world. He finds it divided into schools, as numerously and as zealously attended as any which Greece or Asia could boast in their happiest days. He meets with names totally unknown to him before, which excited as much sensation as those of Aristotle or Plato. He hears of volumes having been written in support of this new philosophy, not one of which has survived to our own day. Many of the founders of these sects had been Christians. Others were of Jewish parentage. Others were more or less connected, in fact, with the pagan rites to which their own bore so great a resemblance. Whatever might be the history of these sects, and though it may be a question whether they can be properly called superstitions, and though many of them numbered educated men among their teachers and followers, they closely resembled, at least in ritual and profession, the vagrant pagan mysteries which have been above described. Their very name of Gnostic implied the possession of a secret, which was to be communicated to their disciples. Ceremonial observances were the preparation, and symbolical rites the instrument of initiation. Tatian and Montanus, the representatives of very distinct schools, agreed in making asceticism a rule of life. Such were the Gnostics, and to external and prejudiced spectators, whether philosophers as Celsus and Porphyry, or the multitude, they wore an appearance sufficiently like the church to be mistaken for her in the latter part of the Antinicene period, as she was confused with the pagan mysteries in the earlier. Let us proceed in our contemplation of this reflection, as it may be called, of primitive Christianity in the mirror of the world. All three writers, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny, call it a superstition. This is no accidental imputation, but is repeated by a variety of subsequent writers and speakers. The charge of Thyestean banquets scarcely lasts a hundred years, but while pagan witnesses are to be found, the church is accused of superstition. Now what is meant by the word thus attached by a consensus of heathen authorities to Christianity? At least it cannot mean a religion, in which a man might think what he pleased, and was set free from all yokes, whether of ignorance, fear, authority, or priestcraft. When heathen writers call the Oriental rites superstitions, they evidently use the word in its modern sense. It cannot surely be doubted that they apply it in the same sense to Christianity. But Plutarch explains for us the word at length in his treatise, which bears the name of all kinds of fear, he says, superstition is the most fatal to action and resource. He does not fear the sea who does not sail, 
nor war who does not serve nor robbers who keeps at home nor the sycophant who is poor nor the envious if he is a private man nor an earthquake if he lives in gaul nor thunder if he lives in ethiopia but he who fears the gods fears everything earth seas air sky darkness light noises silence sleep slaves sleep and forget their masters of the fettered doth sleep lighten the chain inflamed wounds ulcers cruel and agonizing are not felt by the sleeping superstition alone has come to no terms with sleep but in the very sleep of her victims as though they were in the realms of the impious she raises horrible spectres and monstrous phantoms and various pains and whirls the miserable soul about and persecutes it they rise and instead of making light of what is unreal they fall into the hands of quacks and conjurers who say call the crone to expiate bathe in the sea and sit all day on the ground here we have a vivid picture of plutarch's idea of the essence of superstition it was the imagination of the existence of an unseen ever-present master the bondage of a rule of life of a continual responsibility obligation to attend to little things the impossibility of escaping from duty the inability to choose or change one's religion an interference with the enjoyment of life a melancholy view of the world sense of sin horror at guilt apprehension of punishment dread self-abasement depression anxiety and endeavor to be at peace with heaven and error and absurdity in the methods chosen for the purpose such too had been the idea of the epicurean Velaeus when he shrunk with horror from the sempiternus dominus and curiosus deus of the stoics such surely was the meaning of tacitus suetonius and pliny and hence of course the frequent reproach cast on christians as credulous weak-minded and poor-spirited the heathen objectors in minucius and lactantius speak of their old woman's tales celsus accuses them of assenting at random and without reason saying do not inquire but believe they lay it down he says elsewhere let no educated man approach no man of wisdom no man of sense but if a man be unlearned weak in intellect an infant let him come with confidence confessing that these are worthy of their god they evidently desire as they are able to convert none but fools and vulgar and stupid and slavish women and boys they take in the simple and lead him where they will they address themselves to youths house servants and the weak in intellect they hurry away from the educated as not fit subjects of their imposition and inveigle the rustic thou says the heathen magistrate to the martyr fructuosus who as a teacher dost disseminate a new fable that fickle girls may desert the groves and abandon jupiter 
condemn if thou art wise the anile creed hence the epithets of itinerant mountebank conjurer cheat sophist and sorcerer heaped upon the teachers of christianity sometimes to account for the report or apparent truth of their miracles sometimes to explain their success our lord was said to have learned his miraculous power in egypt wizard mediciner cheat rogue conjurer were the epithets applied to him by the opponents of eusebius they worship that crucified sophist says lucian paul who surpasses all the conjurers and impostors who ever lived is julian's account of the apostle you have sent through the whole world says st justin to trypho to preach that a certain atheistic and lawless sect has sprung from one jesus a galilean cheat we know says lucian speaking of chaldeans and magicians the syrian from palestine who is the sophist in these matters how many lunatics with eyes distorted and mouth in foam he raises and sends away restored ridding them from the evil at a great price if any conjurer came to them a man of skill and knowing how to manage matters says the same writer he made money in no time with a broad grin at the simple fellows the officer who had custody of st perpetua feared her escape from prison by magical incantations when st tiburtius had walked barefoot on hot coals his judge cried out that christ had taught him magic st anastasia was thrown into prison as a mediciner the populace called out against st agnes away with the witch tole magam tole maleficam when st bonasus and st maximilian bore the burning pitch without shrinking jews and gentiles cried out isti magi et malefici what new delusion says the heathen magistrate concerning st romanus has brought in these sophists to deny the worship of the gods how doth this chief sorcerer mock us skilled by his thessalian charm carmine to laugh at punishment it explains the phenomenon which has created so much surprise to certain moderns that a grave well-informed historian like tacitus should apply to christians what sounds like abuse yet what is the difficulty supposing that christians were considered mathematici and magi and these were the secret intriguers against established government the allies of desperate politicians the enemies of the established religion the disseminators of lying rumors the perpetrators of poisonings and other crimes read this says paley after quoting some of the most beautiful and subduing passages of st paul read this and then think of exitiabilis superstitio and he goes on to express a wish in contending with heathen authorities to produce our books against theirs as if it were a matter of books public men care very little for books the finest sentiments the most luminous philosophy the deepest theology inspiration itself moves them but little they look at facts and care only for facts the question was what was the worth 
what the tendency of the christian body in the state what christians said what they thought was little to the purpose they might exhort to peaceableness and passive obedience as strongly as words could speak but what did they do what was their political position this is what statesmen thought of then as they do now what had men of the world to do with abstract proofs or first principles a statesman measures parties and sects and writers by their bearing upon him and he has a practised eye in this sort of judgment and is not likely to be mistaken what is truth said jesting pilate apologies however eloquent or true availed nothing with the roman magistrate against the sure instinct which taught him to dread christianity it was a dangerous enemy to any power not built upon itself he felt it and the event justified his apprehension we must not forget the well-known character of the roman state in its dealings with its subjects it had had from the first an extreme jealousy of secret societies it was prepared to grant a large toleration and a broad comprehension but as is the case with modern governments it wished to have jurisdiction and the ultimate authority in every movement of the body politic and social and its civil institutions were based or essentially depended on its religion accordingly every innovation upon the established paganism except it was allowed by the law was rigidly repressed hence the professors of low superstitions of mysteries of magic of astrology were the outlaws of society and were in a condition analogous if the comparison may be allowed to smugglers or poachers among ourselves or perhaps to burglars and highwaymen for the romans had ever burnt the sorcerer and banished his consulters for life it was an ancient custom and at mysteries they looked with especial suspicion because since the established religion did not include them in its provisions they really did supply what may be called a demand of the age we know what opposition had been made in rome even to the philosophy of greece much greater would be the aversion of constitutional statesmen and lawyers to the ritual of barbarians religion was the roman point of honor spaniards might rival them in numbers says cicero gauls in bodily strength carthaginians in address greeks in the arts italians and latins in native talent but the romans surpassed all nations in piety and devotion it was one of their laws let no one have gods by himself nor worship in private new gods nor adventitious unless added on public authority masonus in dio advises augustus to honor the gods according to the national custom because the contempt of the country's deities leads to civil insubordination reception of foreign laws conspiracies and secret meetings suffer no one he adds to deny the gods or to practice sorcery the civilian julius paulus lays it down as one of the leading principles of roman law that those who introduce new or untried religions should be degraded and if in the lower orders 
put to death. In like manner, it is enacted in one of Constantine's laws that the Haruspices should not exercise their art in private, and there is a law of Valentinians against nocturnal sacrifices or magic. It is more immediately to our purpose that Trajan had been so earnest in his resistance to heteriae or sacred societies that when a fire had laid waste Nicomedia and Pliny proposed to him to incorporate a body of a hundred and fifty firemen in consequence, he was afraid of the precedent and forbade it. What has been said will suggest another point of view, in which the Oriental rites were obnoxious to the government, namely as being vagrant and proselytizing religions. If it tolerated foreign superstitions, this would be on the ground that districts or countries within its jurisdiction held them to proselytize to a right hitherto unknown to form a new party and to propagate it through the empire a religion not local but catholic was an offence against both order and reason the state desired peace everywhere and no change considering according to lactantius that they were rightly and deservedly punished who execrated the public religion handed down to them by their ancestors. It is impossible, surely, to deny that, in assembling for religious purposes, the Christians were breaking a solemn law, a vital principle of the Roman constitution, and this is the light in which their conduct was regarded by the historians and philosophers of the empire. This was a very strong act, on the part of the disciples of the great apostle who had enjoined obedience to the powers that be time after time they resisted the authority of the magistrate and this is a phenomenon inexplicable on the theory of private judgment or of the voluntary principle the justification of such disobedience lies simply in the necessity of obeying the higher authority of some divine law but if Christianity were in its essence only private and personal, as so many now think, there was no necessity of their meeting together at all. If, on the other hand, in assembling for worship and holy communion, they were fulfilling an indispensable observance, Christianity has imposed a social law on the world and formally enters the field of politics. Gibbon says that, in consequence of Pliny's edict, the prudence of the Christians suspended their agape, but it was impossible for them to omit the exercise of public worship. We can draw no other conclusion. End of section 9. Recording by Linda Johnson.